0: We don't want to be on either the left or the right. What we want to do is say, look, both of these things are important. There's a temporal aspect to this. Addressing fiscal concerns should come first and at the same time doing what we can to alleviate the triple challenge of unemployment, inequality and poverty. But you can't do it in isolation of strong economic growth and structural reform.
1: There are many different combinations of policies that could be pursued to reduce poverty and inequality. And so the question isn't simply about whether South Africa should pursue a basic income grant or not. But instead, what are the best options for reducing inequality, improving income growth and employment and ensuring that social support can be implemented sustainably without Mm -hmm. threatening the long term sustainability of our debt?
2: This year's research project on basic income support in South Africa comes in response to government's proposal that the social relief of distress fund will be replaced by an alternative form of household support. Given the current political and economic environment in South Africa, what are the trade-offs of different social relief interventions, and how can we identify a policy strategy that best balances social relief and fiscal sustainability? The research we are unpacking today uses a dynamic feedback model to assess the macroeconomic implications of different options for expansion of social transfers in South Africa. I'm your host, Madhu G, and with us today are two of the three co-authors of this paper. Dan Stenkamp, who you may remember, is from Kodira Analytics. We've had him on several podcasts in the past as well as Hilton Hollander, who you will recognize from our sign workshops and those initiatives there. If you're not aware of these initiatives, please do take a look at them on our website. Gentlemen, it is such a pleasure to have you both with us today at the same time, at the same place, and welcome to our podcast.
1: Lovely to be here with
0: you. Thank you, Margot. Yes, pleasure.
2: Thanks. So, on the other side of the COVID-19 pandemic, here we are, fresh after the midterm budget policy statement and the size deadline for tax returns. Hilton, starting with you, could you paint a picture of South Africa now and what this means for the business?
0: Yes, thanks, Margot. A lot of us are on the same page when we understand the, the tough constraints that are facing South Africa at the moment, significant supply-size constraints locally, uh, on top of the overarching international climate, right? There's a lot of uncertainty, not just related to COVID and the fallout of COVID and the persistence of inflation and the monetary policy responses of the Fed and the ECB, you know, big central banks and the Ukraine-Russia war. I think South Africa is in a a very precarious position where we've had persistent stagnant growth for nearly a decade. I think plenty of us would argue and agree that this is a lost decade in the sense that that we've failed on many fronts to create an environment of inclusive growth. And as a result of this, GDP per capita has stagnated significantly. And on top of this, the fiscal space is is highly constrained um, in that we have a small tax base and we have already a highly redistributive fiscal system. So, given this, we, we are faced with this, with this trade-off, right, in this difficult economic mm-hmm. climate where there's heightened social instability, and this is a broad kind of catch-all phrase for the, the riots, the all sorts of disruptions, the strikes that we observe, and, and the need to alleviate poverty, and a need to improve inequality, or lower inequality, that is. And these are long-term structural issues. And overlaid on this are these kind of short-term, medium objectives where You have the fiscal policy that was, I would argue, previously unsustainable. I think to some degree, we are moving in the right direction, especially after the medium-term budget policy statement. We all expected the SRD to be extended and not necessarily permanently. I think the markets have already priced in some sort of permanent relief, and it's yet to be seen, obviously, how this will be funded. But the Treasury came out, I think, aligned with what we recommended in our paper that this would need to be tax financed through revenue or there needs to be a reprioritization of other spending. And in other words, this must not be more debt. Um, So there's a lot of good signals on my side coming out that that we are moving in the right direction on that short to medium run objective of fiscal sustainability, fiscal prudence Mm -hmm. is another term often referred to. But at the same time, we are facing this, dire need to tackle the triple challenge of unemployment inequality and poverty and so you know the reality is uh, I think I, I've raised this up before and Anne Bernstein recently raised this up in, a, in one of her articles you know where you look at the UK and the announcement that was made there whether or not the policy announcement of corporate tax cuts was setting aside the price capping on energy that the UK government did It was a good, a great case where you see an announcement that is of a fiscal intervention that is inappropriately timed and this can lead to significant adverse effects. Mm -hmm. And I think that that this is the reality of the world we live in. We can can come up with all sorts of reasons that we can afford such a a wide, a large extension of social relief, a, a universal basic income grant and all this. But the fact is, we, even if we put aside whether that is sustainable or not, extent of the intervention, the fact that it is so large, can have a significant destabilizing effect on your economy. Yeah. And so what I like about our paper, obviously I like it, is that we, we try to place this into this context, that we don't want to be on either the left or the right. What we want to do is say, look, both of these things are important. There's a temporal aspect to this, so over time, and we have to think about it as such. And in this way, we feel addressing the, the kind of fiscal concerns should become first, and at the same time, doing what we can to alleviate that triple challenge. And then as the economy gains strength, becomes more robust, hopefully, yet to be seen on the political front, that then we can start to think about how to address these other challenges in a significant way.
2: Yes, we need to realise where we are in international space and what our role is, is. We need to be aware of the effects of these announcements and how this compounds to the uncertainty. Given all this international uncertainty, we're within a local constraint, which, as you say, has we really, like you put it, a decade of, um, I think a decade of failed growth or something, which is really, a last
0: decade. Yes. A last
2: decade, yeah, which is really quite a difficult place to be in. But now, in your technical paper, what I really loved about this was you guys had no hesitancy to go into the numbers and the actual implementation of these policies and what would actually happen. Before we get into that, we begin the paper with a beautiful quote by our favorite Adam Smith, and it says, No society can surely be flourishing and happy, of which the far greater part of members are poor and miserable. So, Don, could you tell us a bit more about the purpose of the paper and what your results suggest about the relationship between, as Hilton mentioned, the relationship between inequality, social transfers and economic growth?
1: Yes, Margot. So one of the points we make in the paper is that there are many different combinations of policies that could be pursued to reduce poverty and inequality. And so the question isn't simply about whether South Africa should pursue a basic income grant or not, but instead, what are the best options for reducing inequality, improving income growth and employment, and ensuring that social support can be implemented sustainably without Mm. threatening the long-term sustainability of our debt. So the point of using a model, as we do, is that it can help one assess how different policy settings might affect the achievement of the goals of a particular society. Now, what we do in the paper is we look at the interaction between inequality, economic growth, and sovereign spreads in South Africa. And the intention of the work was to consider whether redistributive fiscal policy might have macroeconomic benefits if they could increase growth and reduce borrowing costs, and so in that way pay for themselves. On the other hand, we wanted also to use the model to inform whether a more redistributive stance of policy might be unaffordable over the long term. So whether an expansion of grants might weigh on growth if they cause interest rates to ratchet up and so in that way contribute potentially to fiscal sustainability risk. And if that were the case, this would not be wealthy enhancing for the majority of the population in South Africa. And so what we discussed in the paper is several stylized facts relating to South Africa's growth inequality and borrowing cost experience. And our model is explicitly calibrated to take these historical relationships into account when assessing the likely impact of different policy choices. And as we note in the paper, a key impact of South Africa's deteriorating fiscal position has been higher risk premia and higher sovereign funding costs. And so this must be taken into account when you assess the potential impacts Mm -hmm. of higher sovereign debt. And so in in this way, our model allows us to consider both the costs and benefits of different policies and compare them explicitly.
2: Yes, that is very pertinent. And I love that this takes a much broader perspective and a much broader view of all the trade-offs that come into play. And in a time of global uncertainty, the sovereign debt and the risk premium associated that, that affects it is really vital. So this is really valuable. Now, you suggest that in the paper, and you've mentioned now, that South Africa has a highly redistributed fiscal system and a very small tax base. We can talk about some of those numbers if we need to. But these grants increase welfare and arguably can break structural poverty by making the economy less exclusive. How much money is spent on social grants and the transfers each year? And what do we know about the impacts of social support in South Africa? Don?
1: So, Margot, the paper describes several aspects of South Africa's fiscal system. And what we show is that the fiscal system is already extensive and highly redistributive. And so it does serve to mitigate the extent of inequality in our society. What this means is that the system is progressive in the sense that, the, that rich people contribute more in, tax, in taxes and the poor receive more in terms of fiscal transfers and services. Uh, South Africa is one of the emerging markets that spends the most of its budget on social assistance. And there was some nice analysis in yesterday's medium-term statement about the extent of spending on what the Treasury calls the social wage. And we spend in excess of 5% of GDP on social expenditures directly that contribute to the reduction in inequality and and also strongly supportive of consumption amongst the poor in South Africa. Now, despite the fact that South Africa has a relatively comprehensive social protection system by emerging market standards, there is still a large number of people who are of working age and are unemployed and do not have meaningful social protection in South Africa.
2: That is very concerning and it still shows the inequality that is still emerging after so many years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe if I can, just on breaking structural poverty, I mean, we we don't address this in the actual paper and the model, but this is a reasonable argument to consider.
2: Yes. And for those of our listeners who are interested in the effects of a basic income support on breaking structural poverty, we do have another paper in this research project, which discusses that in a lot of detail. And we'll be discussing this. So if we're looking then at what this research focuses on, the research question is, given the fiscal constraints, what is the least cost way to implement a social relief program aimed at reducing poverty and unemployment? And like you said, Milton, in the medium term, has the literature looked at this problem before? And why is this paper so different, done?
1: There is a lot of research that has looked at the implications of a basic income grant in a South African context, but we have a long literature review in which we argue that this literature has focused on estimating the cost of such policies and in in particular focused on static assessments of what their implications would be or the distributional effects would be of such policies. Now, what distinguishes our paper from the existing literature is that we explicitly look at the dynamic and long-term implications of different policy options. So we look at how the the way that a basic income grant would be funded affects the macroeconomy and interacts with fiscal settings. So we explicitly look at how an increase in taxes or an increase in debt might affect interest rates in the economy and as a result, economic growth. Now, we are able, as a result, to compare a range of different policy options and carefully assess the macroeconomic costs and macroeconomic benefits of different policy options. And what we do is we don't take a stand on what the the appropriate policy is. We consider the range of policies that have been debated in the South African context, and we provide an assessment based on a calibration of historical relationships between the macroeconomic variables that I've described, the fiscal settings and the outcomes that we've seen in terms of employment and income. And we provide an assessment of the costs short and long-term and the benefits short and long-term in a South African context.
2: That's
0: so if I can just also add in there on the kind of, on the value added of, of our approach is that this is explicitly a a, a general equilibrium framework. So, effectively, this is capturing important feedback mechanisms from fiscal policy announcements, for example, or proposals. Um, And what this means is that, and what's different from other studies on South Africa, is that we explicitly take into account the behavior of households and firms in the economy. And that in the sense that they are forward-looking, that they anticipate how debt funding would actually imply maybe future taxes or how debt funding would raise borrowing costs, which spill over into borrowing costs from the sovereign into the rest of the economy. And this applies as well for businesses. We specifically take a look at two different types of households, what is referred to in the literature as hand-to-mouth households or of thumb households, or poor households versus rich households that have access to finance. And effectively, this is one way how we capture feedback mechanisms and the trade-offs of redistribution. Finally, the other aspect is how the monetary authority will respond. I think this is crucial to our understanding in a macroeconomic context. And it helps, as Don was saying, we try to, to step a little bit back away from being prescriptive but more emphasising the range of potential funding options and what would be feasible, what one can expect, what fiscal authorities could expect by their various proposals.
2: Okay, very interesting. So when you look at how you model these various options of how this could be funded sustainably, we looked at three different scenarios. Could you tell us about how you chose those scenarios? Putin?
0: Okay, so the first scenario looks at the a range or the size of interventions. And we want to basically establish this, what, to what extent would a universal basic income grant look like to one that becomes more targeted and also okay. different sizes of interventions. And we wanted to focus on this first to really try and tackle or at least highlight this debate that's currently going on between a universal versus a target income support. What we show is that a target of income support is your best way forward in that it has the least cost, but the best welfare outcomes for the poorest households. In that scenario, we don't take a stance on the tax funding. What we do is we say, given the historical way that government has gone about using their fiscal instruments, all right, we leave that as is. So, those who are interested, you look at the table, you will see that, you know, value-added tax, personal income tax, and corporate income tax are all adjusted. So, we wanted to hold this constant. In other words, another way of saying this is saying, given the tax funding dynamics, or at least the, the historical tax funding behavior, we look at various social interventions, okay, and to establish that universal versus targeted distinction. Then we look at scenario two. Now here we say, okay, it makes sense to have a targeted grant that is much smaller. It's not as large as what a universal basic income grant. It makes sense that it should be targeted. And we say, okay, really not to be again prescriptive. We look at the food poverty line as a benchmark, but you could equally look at the social relief of distress grant, something that that size, that just like the medium-term budget policy statement, it was extended a bit further. But, given that now we look at what are the best tools, fiscal instruments to use to fund this, and in that way, we eliminate corporate income tax, and that 's why it doesn't appear in that scenario too in our in our in our main set of results, but we actually have a section in the paper where we show how corporate income tax creates significantly worse adverse effects and should basically not be not be looked at and we're looking at the value added tax versus personal income tax, and we also want to compare. What does a value-added tax look like versus one that has a combination of personal income tax and value-added tax? And what's important here is that we 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 optimize what these instruments should be doing, not in necessarily. So we have to be careful here. It's not a it's not optimal in the sense of strictly how that this is the way the tax should be done to maximize welfare. They're closely related. We optimize it in the sense that. We say the fiscal authority cares about its, its debt to GDP ratio, in other words, the sustainability of, its, of the fiscus, as well as the welfare of the economy or the households. And so essentially, let me just kind of ring fence the three main feedback mechanisms that one should be aware of here through a fiscal intervention like this. One is that higher debt will lead to higher borrowing costs two more transfers by government will crowd out some of other government spending right this reprioritization and you also get direct crowding out of private sector consumption investment because there is a fixed amount of resources in an economy so to some extent if government is providing money there's this this money will be spent on existing available resources which then will make resources less available to the private sector. turns out that this is less of a major channel, in, in my view, from what from what uh, we know we've extracted from the model and our understanding and also literature. And I think the predominant channels are these ones about, you know, to the extent that this is successfully tax-funded, I doubt it will be tax-neutral. I mean, it could be presented like that but to the extent that it's tax funded, there will be some higher debt and this will have the usual kind of mechanism of raising borrowing costs to some extent and also lowering disposable income of households as well. And in this sense, it's about output stabilizing. You want to limit the degree to which output contracts significantly. So based on this funding strategy, we, we we see that a value-added tax on net is a better approach than even one that has a combination of value-added tax and personal income tax. And again, we have to then overlay this within the reality in the real world where we understand that the literature evidence is strongly suggestive that given a small tax base, given already fairly high marginal tax rates, that there is actually limited scope to raise this further. And, and this does raise a conundrum. But again, we don't want to be prescriptive. So we we literally want to present the evidence so that policymakers are informed and can try and understand this as not just policymakers, but those in industry and, and others, others in academics can, can see how these mechanisms are operating and then take the results, which is a reduced form model. At the end of the day, we can't model the complex world. But what we can do is guide the narrative and guide the decision-making process with strong evidence. And then that's where we we can clearly see that the results that we're showing are aligned with what we see in the literature evidence outside of South Africa and also within South Africa. So Harry Kemp has done some great work on on tax elasticity, and he he actually was the the one who initiated this model in his PhD, which we have continued with. So, and then the final scenario, we get to scenario three and we say, look, now the reality is that all of these scenarios we've looked up till now, in one and two, are unsustainable. It's just not feasible as is. And effectively, what is required, what is necessary, is that we have economic growth. And so what we try to look at is a scenario where government- increases public infrastructure expenditure, but that this has spillover effects, what we might refer to as efficiency gains for private sector investment. Now, this is really tricky. We can't say that this would happen for certain, but if we take the stance that if those kind of constraints, like the electricity supply capacity that we currently have, are dealt with, and you have the economic growth, you can actually achieve the fiscal redistribution or the social transfer that you would want. So you can do it, but you can't do it in isolation of strong economic growth and structural reform. And that's, what we, that's the main, I'd say, the main, main point that we, that we really have to stress in this paper is that none of this is feasible without economic growth. And that's it. And, and we have to re- remove those structural constraints on the supply side. This is not a demand side thing. This is not a, you know, all the money is sitting there and people just aren't spending it because through some kind of precautionary savings, this is, there are significant structural constraints and without taking that away, we won't be able to actually implement any of these policies sustainably.
2: We have to look at these things holistically. But when you say it's not fiscally or it's not financially sustainable without that third option, I'm just thinking with taxes on the minds of, business owners been, just having had the size deadline for tax returns, how much would your average taxpayer be affected if this were to be funded from the taxpayers?
0: The numbers yeah. off the top of my head are not, are not here. And I think, look, I mean, look, it's a relevant question, right?
1: Margot, so we present a, there's a table in the paper in which we present some simple sums that try to tackle this question. I think it's important to note that it's, it's hard to generalize the impact to the average taxpayer because of the progressiveness of our tax system and the fact as a result that different taxpayers will pay different amounts of tax for a given change in, in, a, in a tax policy. But our simple sums calculations show that if you were to spread the costs of an expansion of the SRD across the tax base, this would imply a an increase in the amount of tax that an average taxpayer would pay of about 6,000 rand a year or about 500 rand a month. Of course, this is going to be an inaccurate estimate given the caveat that I mentioned. But I think it is important to note that the amount of extra tax that will be required to finance an expansion in social grants will depend not only on the macro context, but also on the, the detailed specifics of the program and the financing approach that's followed. But the exercise was meant to demonstrate that uh, the more extensive an increase in social support would be, that there could be very dramatic increases in the amount of tax that's required to finance such expansion and that the likely macroeconomic consequences of very large increases in either VAT or personal income tax would, would inevitably have meaningful consequences for growth and borrowing costs.
2: This has to be coordinated, as, as Hinton mentioned, with significant growth policies and tackling these big issues like infrastructure and education and all these, all these things that we have spoken about. So cannot be looked at in isolation. I think this is really a fantastic piece of research that we all have done. Tell me, Dan, is there anything, or oh, what did this research not do, and What is the room for future research? I know Wilson mentioned something about looking at how distortionary that tax system could be. But what, in your opinion, is future directions for research?
1: Well, I think there are two big issues for me. One is that we focus on considering only the policy combinations that have been discussed in the public debate around the basic income grant. We haven't explored what the optimal policy might be for reducing income inequality and reducing poverty in South Africa. So I think an an assessment of the optimal combination of different policies that would sustainably achieve improved social relief would be a really valuable contribution. Then the other for me is that there could be a lot more that could be done to understand the nonlinear relationship between public debt and interest rates and borrowing costs. This relationship is non-linear and so very difficult for us to model with a great degree of confidence. And that relationship is really important in the context of our model because higher debt in the model does contribute to a weaker exchange rate and as a result, higher inflation pressures. And the the more accurately one can capture that relationship, the more confidence we can have about the sustainability of the policies that we consider in our scenarios.
0: Yes, and thanks, Don. And and maybe I can punt Don's work a bit. He's been doing a lot of work on the premium. And Africa is an interesting special case. So for those who are interested, this is a Definitely a low-hanging fruit to investigate South Africa's term premium structure and what are the driving mechanisms there. Okay, so <laughs> just a hat tip to Don and his work. I think another important aspect of the future work that we that we discussed actually at quite length and, and started to work on, but was difficult to incorporate given the, the difficulty of quantifying it and, and lack of literature even internationally, on how improvements in social stability can have positive effects on the economy. And in this respect, what we intend to do in future work is to try and incorporate a channel where through transfer system that has a positive effects on social stability can reduce fiscal costs and macroeconomic costs. Fiscal costs, on the one hand, because credit rating agencies typically look at political risk and socioeconomic risk in how they perceive the future of the economy and the ability of the government to, to repay that debt, right? So by creating a more socially stable Society, you can reduce that risk. I think that's on the margin, and this would unlikely kind of change our results, our main conclusions of our paper. But I think it's important for us to understand this mechanism because there are certainly positive effects, especially in the long term, on social cohesion. South Africa is highly fractionalized at the moment, and this is a significant mm-hmm. constraint on our ability to move forward. And then on the, on the other aspect, on the direct macroeconomic costs, you know, the protests, strike actions, riots, these are typically in response to unhappiness, right, about the life, life livelihoods of, of individuals in the country. And, and extending grants can alleviate that. And I think that is an important channel to consider when we're discussing the trade-offs between fiscal sustainability and the welfare of, of poor households. And I think before we can get to what Don mentioned about the optimal policy, in a a welfare sense, in a strict modeling sense, and this nonlinear debt profile that, or the link between, you know, debt and the risk premium, we need to try and think very carefully about this channel before we can move to those other two. And we hope to get onto this work next year and provide some insight here because there's very, very, very little literature or evidence in this area.
2: Very interesting. It's a good heads up for any future researchers and you know to contact Hilton and Don if you need to. <laughs> Thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to add?
1: Nothing for me.
0: No, other than thanks, Margot, very much for inviting us. It was an absolute pleasure. My first podcast and I hope to, to do many, many more and improve. So We
2: look forward to having you <laughs> with us. It has been a lot of fun and my Thanks first to you both, especially, for giving us the time and sharing all this insightful research and great ideas. I think we're really looking to stimulate conversation on all these topics, and this has really been wonderful. So thank you so much. Thank you also to our listeners. And if you would like to read more about this research, we have a discussion document, a technical background paper, as well as some links to publications that were published in The Conversation and experience media outlets. You can find all of these on our website. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe to Ursa on LinkedIn and Twitter. This is your host, Margaret G. from the Ursa Podcast Series. Thank you. Till next time.